Welcome to Money Grows on Trees. Money does grow on trees. A podcast full of practical, real-life money lessons that you wish you learned in school. Lloyd is a former lawyer turned lifestyle entrepreneur. In each episode, he'll be answering the tough questions around money, investing, and entrepreneurship to help you transform your money mindset and move you closer to achieving your financial goals. Now, let the class begin. Here's your host, Lloyd Ross. All right, welcome back to the show, Money Grows on Trees podcast, and I am sitting here with uh, none other than my mentor, the OG mentor, uh, the man who taught me the most in, in life, in business, uh, raised me, <laughs> and we're sitting in the middle of service paradise. You can probably hear some of the hooligans going past here in the daytime. We're here on a Saturday morning sharing a, a, a Johnny Walker together, and uh, it's none other than... My dad. How you going, dad? Really good, mate. Really good. This is good. Fantastic. We're sitting, we're on the podcast. We're in, we're in Service Paradise at your office. So around us, you've got Hilton Hotel. We've got um, the Rochelle Renaissance. We're right in the heart of Service Paradise where dad's office is. And uh, we've been talking about doing this for a while. We have. And we haven't, uh, now we're here. So you like my new outside office? Yeah. We're in the, you've got a little outside office off the, uh, just like, it's this little beautiful little cove and we can see all the buildings and the trams going past so you you might hear some background noise like you might have heard the tram go past there you might hear some people who are still out from last night <laughs> but i think it's uh it's fun to be here uh you know outside where where we catch up ordinarily and and do this i think it's a great spot great to do it here and uh it's nice to have a scotch because you know <laughs> It's, uh, we'll loosen that up a little bit here on the podcast. His first, it's his first real episode. I did one with him before, but my microphone was no good. So now I've got a mic, we're good to go, and, and it's Dad's first podcast. Looking forward to it. All right, so <clears throat> I'm going to... We're going to do this, this, the, this, this episode with Dad. It's going to go over probably four... I don't know how, how many yet, but it's going to go over probably four parts. So it's a four-part series. So Phil's going to edit this for us. He's going to drop one part per week... Um, and we're going to go through, we're going to unpack dad's story and his life and, and we're going to draw out all the wonderful lessons and things that he can share with uh, you guys to help you with your money, to help you with your success in life. And we're going to talk about some fun things that he's done in his life. So I've got to say to you guys, buckle up. It's going to be great. Uh, <laughs> dad, dad's sitting here next to me going, oh my goodness, what are we going to talk about here? But so here's what I want to do first, dad, before we go roll into those episodes, just to loosen things up a little bit. Let's do this. I've put down a few quick-fire questions here. So I'm going to fire these questions at you. You just tell me yeah, yeah. quickly what you think, or just so everyone gets a bit of an idea who you are, right? All right, good. <clears throat> Sounds good. So, cat or dog? Dog. Dog, okay. <laughs> Summer or winter? <laughs> Summer. Summer. <laughs> Favourite motorcycle? <laughs> oh, jeez, there's a lot of those. Harley-Davidson. Harley-Davidson. <laughs> Harley-Davidson what? Fat boy. Fat boy. Harley Davidson, fat boy. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that in the story. <coughs> Favourite car? Aston Martin. Probably uh, Porsche, really. Porsche. Favourite car is Porsche. Yep. There you go. Uh, Favourite food? Ooh, jeez. Favourite food. Wow. I like a good roast baked dinner. Roast baked dinner. There you go. <laughs> Meanwhile, we just had a half a Devon and Devon and onion sandwich together here. <laughs> Split it up. I just we just had a Devon sandwich. That classic Australian uh, sandwich for lunch. So anyway, all right. Favorite song. Well, that'll be um, that'll be a song of Elvis Presley's. 
All right, any song of Elvis. So you're going to answer the next one. Favourite musician? Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. There you go. Favourite holiday destination? Oh, wow. La Meridian Hotel in Thailand. The La Meridian Hotel in Thailand. There you go. Uh, if you haven't been there, go there. It's one. It's, 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 it's a cracker destination. Favourite drink? Scotch and Coke. Johnny Walker Red. On the rocks. On, on the rock. <laughs> on Coke with ice. That's Dad's drink. He's been drinking that for as long as I can remember. Uh, okay, here we go. Shares or property? In the first part of my life, property. In the back end of my life, shares. There you go. Great combination. And, of course, last one, favourite child. I have four. <laughs> I'm lucky to have four. <laughs> oh, mate, that's a trick question. Uh, uh, so I'm one of four siblings. So there you go. All right. So there's some quick fire questions. You get a bit, get to know a bit about Dad. Um, and so now I just want to – let's go back, Dad. Let's just – I want to take everyone back to so how how what's your age current age now? I'm 65. So 65, and what year were you born? 1957. Okay, so let take us back, back to your, the first parts of your life before you really got into business, uh, before you were successful. Tell us what was your childhood like and your first jobs and that sort of stuff. Well, my childhood was um, a good childhood, and I you know was happy child until my father was killed in a road accident when I was eight, and that changed my life a lot. And it was probably the, the awakening, so to speak, at that point in time in my life with the tragedy, that the loss of my father. And from there, I knew that I had to, uh, you know, really get on with my life a little more than, um, you know, I didn't have that father influence in there any longer as the breadwinner of the family. I started my first job when I was 10. I used to sweep floors at a, a nightclub in early hours of the morning. And um, my mother didn't know I was doing that at the time, but it was a way of generating some pocket money and, and my little way of contributing, I thought, at that time. And I continued to uh, you know, go to school. I enjoyed school, played a lot of sports, played football and cricket, basketball. I got into motorcycles, started racing motorcycles when I was in my uh, early teens. And, uh, you know, I was having a, probably a pretty good, nice life. My first real job was uh, an apprentice plant mechanic, heavy earth moving equipment with the main roads department. But whilst I was doing that job, I also had another job pumping petrol. And when I'd have my annual holidays, I'd go humping roof tiles. So I was sort of pretty keen to make money and have a good life and do the best I could for my family and, and the future of my, my own family. So you, you left school when you were 15? I did. <clears throat> and, you be, and you did your apprenticeship, is that right? Yeah, I did for four years. So diesel mechanic apprenticeship? Yeah, I did. And I wasn't real good at it, but I completed <laughs> it. <laughs> so when did you figure out you weren't good at it? Probably the first day I started. <laughs> first day, there you go. You never finish out what you start, right? There you go. So dad, dad's out of school, into his apprenticeship. First day you started. So how old were you then? 15. 15, okay. So at that point... You said you had three jobs. You were you were you doing that? Plant mechanic, plant diesel mechanic? fitter, yeah. Pumping gas at the petrol station. Petrol station three nights a week. Three nights a week, and you were roof tiling. Roof tiling in uh, my annual leave holidays. Okay. And, and weekends. And just so everyone knows, this is this is in Tamworth, New South Wales, the town of Tamworth. It's a country town. It, it's more famous now, but back then it, it was smaller. But uh, this is in a country town, New South Wales. So. Um, Dad's got two sisters, and and his father passed away when he was eight. So he, this is the the beginnings, 
And so I think it's important to say, why, why did you work so much? Well, I wanted to, I, you know, we, when my father died, you know, we weren't a very um, affluent family and, and we struggled as a family. And I didn't want to struggle all of my life. So I decided the only way to do that was to work hard and work diligently and work as many jobs as I possibly could. So you wanted to just improve your, your lifestyle, your, your, your standard living? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what would you say? So that, would, that was driving in the early days. So, and you got into um, racing, speedway, motorcycles. I raced short circuit, motocross and, and speedway. And um, I went to England hoping that I could uh, carve out a career in motorcycle racing. But I really just didn't have the firepower, didn't have the money, didn't have, probably have the, uh, the ability either. So just so everyone knows, Speedway is uh, is basically where you're riding motorcycles around a dirt track, and they got no brakes. Correct. Right? They one, got no brakes. <laughs> one year, no so, brakes. So you can you can do you on YouTube some Speedway motorcycle racing and see what that is. So how old were you then? Uh, 18, 19, 20. 18, 19, and 20. So in his late teens, so racing spare. So you went to England. Yeah. And what was that experience like when you were in your teens? I had a lovely time. Then? I had a lovely time in England. I. Uh, went to uh, apply for riding for a club called Bristol Bulldogs and um, but you know there was a lot of people in those years that were speedway riders and the competition was fierce to get a ride and you really did have to have you know the right motorcycle and have the money to be able to, to do it you know full, full time on a professional basis which was a little difficult when you really don't have those funds. Yeah 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 okay so so when so at what point so you, you ended up you went overseas and you left your apprenticeship, so you didn't want to become a diesel fitter, uh, or you didn't want to continue being a diesel mechanic. <coughs> and so you went out to England, and when you came back, how old were you when you come back? 21. Just, oh, uh, nearly, yeah, 21. Okay. So, so that, did you know what you were going to do? <coughs> I think travelling, uh, spending, living in Engl- England made me really appreciate just what a good country Australia is. Uh, the English were very friendly, and um, I made a lot of good friends in the time that I was there. But also, it's a very harsh climate, and it's a harsh place to live. And it really did make me appreciate Australia a lot more. And when I did return to Australia, I returned with, you know, I was a different person, and I certainly had a lot more zeal in me to do well in life. And I wasn't going to just settle for average. You know, it wasn't in my makeup. It's not in my DNA. I just wanted to be successful in life and, and, and do well in life and have, have the nice things in life that you know, success brings. Live in a lovely home, drive nice motor cars, travel, travel the world and um, you know, really make it a worthwhile life. So where, does that, where, did that, where did that come from for you? How did you learn that? What, what, what was the driver there? Like, uh, I think the driver there was, you know, I had some um, growing up um, some challenges but I also had some good people that that really put me on on a good path when I was 21 I joined the insurance business and when I joined that insurance business that was also an awakening time for me because it was my introduction to the world of sales and marketing and in those days um, there was I had a sales manager his name was Vic Hatfield and he was a tremendous mentor to me and another chap that worked in the insurance business that I was associated with his name was Vernon Lewis, and he was a very instrumentally uh, a mentor to me as well. He taught me the 
business principles of how to run a checkbook and as basic as that might sound because I really didn't have any of those, um, those sort of skills in business at all because I'd come from a working class family, I'd been in a working class environment um, but I had never been in a business environment and being in a business environment is a lot different when you start to really you know, fine tune yourself in life and naturally at school you know, we don't learn how to run um, balance sheets or we don't learn how to run a checkbook or you know, the things that are fairly important instruments in, so in your daily life. So you're school didn't teach you business, school didn't teach you about money, school didn't teach you much else but probably how to read and write. And school taught me how to read and write and, and, and be able to you know, um, maybe socialise socialise with other people and 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 playing lots of sport. You know, helped a lot too because uh, you know I'm a team player and uh, I played a lot of team sports and and naturally um, you know in business that's a pretty important thing too to be able to bring those team sports skills to the fore in business. So how, let's just unpack that a bit because we've gone a bit fast forward to insurance. So. So that's just, what, what I want to know is how did you go from coming back from England, probably not much money and uh, at that age I'd imagine, how did you go from that to becoming an insurance salesman? Well I was a step in between, I, I got a job with a, a, a company called Gestetner and Gestetner um, they were mostly um, providing uh, a machine that was in schools um, and the old Gestetner machine, it sort of um, really started my sales career because I'd go around to the schools and introduce myself and, and do a demonstration of how and what the Gestetner machine would and could do. And then they would um, put it into the school over a period of a trial period and then I would go back and follow up and make sure that the machine was working. and. I'd go back on the basis that I was going to take the machine out and they wouldn't let me take it out because they got used to using it so they would then fully buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you didn't have any sales skills, you didn't have any business skills and so in between from when you started, we came back from overseas and you went to do in, into an insurance business, you, want, you needed to obviously get some experience I imagine, they wanted you to have some, some experience in selling or face to face something or other. Well yeah, I guess that it was really, you know, all selling is about personal, being personal and uh, and I was a pretty happy person and, and pretty personable and and I was young and I was enthusiastic and I think that came through, you know, in my job interview for that position. Yeah. And then when I did get around the schools I could relate to a lot of the school teachers because, you know, I'd sort of grown up with school teachers around my life as mentors, I suppose. Yeah. So that helped me a lot, just being back in that school environment. Um, in terms of, you know, those sort of people that I was used to being around. So, so Dad's selling these Gestetner machines to schools around country New South Wales, and you were saying to me one time that you got in the car and you went to drove to Newcastle, picked up the machines instead of waiting for them to come to you. Yeah. Went out to the school, so you went out to see the teachers. You just said that you put them in place, give them a demo. Yeah. And then you go back to see if you'd take it from them. And they said no, we need to buy it now. So you're kind of showing that they needed it. Really, <laughs> you're solving a problem for them. Really, which yeah. is what sales is at the end of the day, isn't it? Solving problems. So, so. What was that experience like? What did you learn when you were when you're starting out doing Gestetta machines, driving around to schools? I learned how to drive a lot of miles. Yeah. And uh, break a lot of windscreens. What do you mean? And well, the roads were pretty terrible in those days, and there were lots of trucks on the roads, and you know I'd be from one town to another in the middle of the night, 
driving and getting ready for the next day in that uh, particular centre where I was going to be working and I'd bust a windscreen at one o'clock in the morning and uh, then limp into town, you know, slowly and get the car repaired and while I was getting the car repaired I'd be out around talking to the school principals and, and people who were making the decisions to put the Ecostep machines into place. So just so everyone knows, in those days I think that the glass windows in cars weren't plastic like they are now. They were actually glass. Yeah, they were. So what Dad's saying is he would drive around at night, a stone would hit the the glass window and then it would shatter the glass in the front and so he'd drive around with a broken glass window. So so it wasn't pretty. It's not not a pretty... When you first cut your teeth on something, it wasn't pretty, was it? You were doing miles. There was no mobile phones in those days. Probably just probably having a cigarette and listening to the radio or on your way in between schools. Driving around, driving from one town to another of a night time, did give me a lot of time to think about a lot of things and about my life and about the things that uh, were important to me and the things that I was planning to do in my life. So, you know, there's not much else to do at two o'clock in the morning driving along the highway. And so, did you know, like, <clears throat> what, so you wanted to be successful at that point because no one does those miles and does that if they don't want to be successful. So, did you know you were going to succeed? I always knew I'd succeed because I was determined okay. and uh, determination, you know, is, is, and I always had the courage and um, but I was inspired, you know, with other people that I'd, I'd watched over my life. In that, in who, that, who was inspiring you then? Do you think pe- people were inspiring me who were successful in the world of business? Okay. I watched other people in the insurance business, and I, I noted the cars that they were driving, and I noted the homes that they're li- living in, and yeah. I noted the, you know, the way they dressed and, and yep. things like that. And that's something that inspired me to want to be able to achieve the same. So rather than, um, so you, fe- you, you noticed that the, the insurance business was a looked to be a profitable one. People were dressed well, driving nice cars, and you, instead of you throwing rocks at them, you know, and having a tall poppy syndrome, uh, you were inspired by them. So yeah. you wanted to kind of be, you know, lift into that and, and aspire to be better and greater and more yep. successful yeah, rather yeah. than the opposite of... Yeah, Australia, sadly, sometimes over the years has had that tall poppy syndrome, I think. And uh, I've noticed it as I've travelled around the world, the different attitudes. Um, sometimes, you know, Australia's probably evolved in, in more recent 20 or 30 years than they do now probably... Um, become inspired from successful people but back in those days if you were successful there was a lot of tall poppiness about it and there's no question in those years because people you know weren't used to people doing well in life yeah and i think there was a game changer in about 1983 when bob hawke became prime minister of australia and he and paul keating his treasurer at that time they floated the australian dollar deregulated the financial markets and for the very first time, Australia was competing in the world on a world stage. Some months later, I think it was September, I remember uh, Australia too won the America's Cup. And um, on that occasion, there was, uh, fr- from memory, there were seven races and Australia won the last race ahead of um, Liberty, the American sail, sail, uh, sailboat, and beat it by 41 seconds. And that was the first time that the America's Cup was ever lost by America and it was won by Australia in 41 seconds of that last deciding race. And that really, for the first time, put Australia on a world stage and even the Americans started to know where Australia was and that it did exist because it was a significant time in, in our heritage. So that, the impact of that, obviously, is the fact that then it opened up big businesses like insurance and different sales roles and... 
and the employment in Australia would have changed a lot. You know, and the opportunity would have definitely changed then yeah. in the early eighties. This is what we're talking about in the early eighties. So, let me ask you this, Dad. So you're going from Gastetner. How did you get a job as an insurance salesman? <laughs> well, that was really difficult because the the insurance industry at that stage didn't really um, give people opportunity at the age unless they were a minimum of 25 years of age. And you were 21. Yeah, and right. I was 21 and okay. nearly 22. So um, I'd knocked on the door of the insurance company um, and they said politely no, that I was too young and at that stage I wasn't even married and had no children so they didn't think I had any stability in my life. But I continued to go back every week for the next three months on a regular on a Friday at three o'clock, and I'd go into the office and ring the bell, and uh, Vic Hatfield, the sales manager, would come out and say, "Hello, Lloyd, I've been expecting you. I'll see you next Friday." In other words, you're still not getting a start, but I'll see you next Friday, no doubt. And I said, "You will." So I did that every week for about three months, and then finally, um, Vic, being the, the the good soul that he is, he decided that he would. Um, um, turn a blind eye to my age and he would give me an opportunity to start uh, which I did and so, from there it uh, evolved so when you got a no you kept going back so perseverance going back and ringing the bell with Vic and saying I'm here again can you <laughs> give me a chance give me a chance so you, you you seem to be someone that doesn't like taking no for an answer would I is that <laughs> no is just not in my um, vocab it, it, it's not in my vision not in your vision. No. So would you say it's important for everyone to have a vision? So you had a vision, really, of what you wanted your life to be yeah, like. I did, I did. I and do you think that's did. where your motivation came from, to keep going back and asking for that yeah, job? Yeah, sure, sure did. The enthusiasm. My, my vision was that I was determined I would be in the insurance business. Yeah. And uh, my vision was that I would be able to um, be good at that particular industry because it was all about people. And, yeah. I, and I enjoy people. There you go. Okay, so you realise you have a bit of a... You had a lot to people. You saw that there was profits to be made in that industry. You saw them doing well. And you realised that you weren't the right fit for it based on what they were looking for. But it didn't matter to you because it wasn't in your vision. Nah. So you just kept going back. So perseverance paid off because Vic said, hey, I'll give you... He obviously was testing you too because he said, well, if he comes coming back, he's going to probably make a pretty good salesperson because <laughs> perseverance is important, right? In, in success. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So <clears throat> you're about 21, 22 at this point. And uh, who, what was the company you joined as an insurance salesman? It was a company called TNG. Okay, TNG. And tell us what happened. So what happened at that point? What, what's so we're do, just to everyone who's listening to this, we're talking about now. Dad's about to approach, and everything to this point has led him to this point, right? So it's not just like he just started, but we're talking about where he became, where he's becoming a millionaire for the first time. So tell us what once you got that job. What did you actually do then, the day you got it, what are some of the things you did to then go and try and succeed at it? What were your results like? What happened after that? Well, the very first day, um, Vic Hatfield, my sales manager, he took me for a drive and he drove me past the uh, cemetery. And um, he said to me, Lloyd, the people that are in that cemetery never envisaged that they were, would be there maybe as early as they were. Some went earlier than they had planned. And, but in, in, inevitably, everybody would finish up there. And therefore, you know, the, the real need for life insurance is, is real. And, uh, and people really should have that to protect their families in the event that they do go 
uh, earlier than planned and uh, leave their family with at least, you know, having the ability to own their own home and, um, you know, have some sort of a lifestyle, uh, that, you know, from the loss of maybe a breadwinner. And it really rang true with me at that stage because, you know, after losing my father when I was eight and the difficult process that my mother had, uh, you know, getting us kids to where we got to in life uh, was a pretty difficult job for her and, you know, a widow with three kids, three young children, that is. So when he said that to me, I then decided that everybody needed life insurance and I was going to make sure there's as many people that I could... Uh, get to and, 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 and explain it to that I would encourage them to do that. So it was something that really did, um, the penny dropped with me really. Yeah. It wasn't just about the lifestyle of what the insurance industry was offering, but I recognised then that there was a true benefit of people having life insurance. So what Vic did with you, he took you under his wing. So yeah, there's a bit of men there's mentorship happening already, but what he's done is he's taken you out field to, to talk to you about the product. This is the product we have, Lloyd. This is the problem it solves, Lloyd. Do you see this, Lloyd? Do you understand it? And your background, your story with your father dying, I mean, you would have understood it probably better than anyone. Yeah, and I think maybe your background probably lent itself to the fact that your story would probably inspire people to actually realise they do need that particular product. Yeah. And I think it just worked. I, I thought on that, on that occasion at that young age that I was uh, destined to be in the insurance business. And uh, it was a business that I enjoyed and a business that I loved and a business that I was really good at. So how did you learn after that? How did you learn how to sell insurance products? What did you do? What was it like? Because there was no, listen, there's no social media in those days. There was no telemark. There was just, there was you in the car, no mobile phone. And tell us, how did you go about selling the insur life insurance products to people in those days after that? In the first three, three to six months, I would go and speak to people on an individual basis and um, you know, I had a pretty good network of, of people I knew and friends and school friends and people I played sport with. So I'd go and talk to them and um, you know, show them the benefits and associated with having an insurance policy and a savings plan. And um, after about six months, at that stage, my fiancee, Susan, who is Lloyd's, uh, became uh, my wife and Lloyd's mother, her boss in the insurance business, he worked for a company. There goes, there goes a Harley Davidson straight past the office. Uh, you can get a bit of an idea of where we're sitting here, but keep going. So, 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 so well, my future wife, Susan, her, she worked for an insurance company called Colonial Mutual and her boss, Barry Condon, he was a champion bloke, a really good footballer in his day, a great uh, insurance man and a real good person. And I'd have a beer with Barry Cundin occasionally because my fiancé was his personal secretary. And um, Barry and I were at the pub one, one afternoon and he said to me, Lloyd, I know that uh, Susan's told me you're in the business with uh, TNG. I wish you would have come and talked to me. But be as it may, I'm here to help you. What can I do to help you? And I said, well, I'm enjoying the business a lot. And he said, well, why don't you think about going around talking to large employer groups? And I said, well, can you do that? He said, yeah. He said, there's a thing called group selling. And I didn't understand what group selling was at that stage. And so he, he, he mentored me through the process of what group selling is. So I went back to my own company and said, do you have these groups in place with these large employers, like the uh, State Rail Authority and Electricity Commissions and Telecom, well in those days it was Telecom, now Telstra. And uh, to my delight, 
my sales manager said, yes, we do. And I said, well, I'm going to go and start talking to those larger employment groups and I'm going to see if that I can talk to their staff in group situations, which I then became specialised in that area. And I would go right around the country, country New South Wales and eventually the whole state and then eventually interstate and I'd talk to those big companies. So what you learnt here, if I can, keep, if I can get, get this right, is that you learnt that it was inefficient with your time just to be talking to individuals, so business to customer, face to face, and you realised through a catch up with Barry at, at, at a local pub that it was more efficient and better to sell to large groups of people at once than it was to sell individually right well i worked it out that it'd be like if it took an hour hour and a half to do a good quality presentation that it'd be better if i was doing it to 20 people rather than just one yeah it's 20 to one so you get 20x your leverage in your time and um and it proved to be that that was a very successful model and and a successful formula yeah and i think so it's called the one-to-many approach now these days, but in those days, as Dad said, it was called group selling. So he's, you can see here, Dad, you've, you've, you've it's funny, you learn, like, okay, well, that's, that's a good, but it's, I can be more effective. So someone gave you the idea, right, through your network, which is Barry. You went back to your employer and asked for the opportunity. They said, yes, we do have that. You've gone into group selling, and you realize you can do a lot more with your time selling to more people at once. So were you a little bit, like, how did you learn how to do group selling if you had no experience? Like, how did, were you scared of public speaking? What it, how did you just set up the meetings? Like, these are the details of, like, of, of how you do it. So what happened then? How did you do that? How did you learn that? Well, I remember Ron Barassi saying many years ago, practice, uh, perfect practice makes perfect. And, um, and I just worked on the principle that the more I spoke to, the uh, better I would become and the, and, the, and the better presentation that I would do. And... When I talked to groups like that, I'd get a lot of questions at the end of the presentation. And um, most of the time I knew the answers, but not all the time. So it was a continual process of learning for me as well that I could take to the next presentation. And then I worked out how to get referral-based opportunities. So the employer that I'd spoken to and the general manager um, of any particular organisation, I would get him to... Um, make a phone call to his counterpart, you know, in another location or another region, and I'd get a, a personal knockdown saying that, you know, the work that I'd done in his area and his section, um, people were happy with, and then then that yeah, would they would then afford me the opportunity of going and talking to their their. their I'm gonna I'm gonna I thought maybe a scotch would loosen that up, but he's being far too professional here. What he's trying to say is he would go to he would visit. He would visit a school or a police station or an employer like Telstra and so on, and he would get to know the person in that particular estate, like in the police station or the yeah, sergeant. Yeah. Arm. You introduce yeah, yourself, yeah. you learn his name, and then you'd actually ask the fellow, who is the other person in charge at the other police station? Correct. And they'd tell you his name, yeah. and you'd then go to that one yeah. and drop that fellow's name, yeah. and then that'd get you rapport and get you into the, the centre of influence, I think. Yeah. So you were wanting to talk to the centres of influence who had control or influence over the potential groups. customers and groups groups of people, the employers, yeah. right? Yeah. Employees. So there was a craft to that you picked up in the field. Well, it, it's interesting in the police area, at one stage I had, uh, New South Wales had 11,000 police and I had two and a half to 3,000 of those police as my clients. And uh, I'd walk in and out of police stations 
like in those days you could the security was very different and you know a lot of the people actually thought I was a police officer because I'd spent so much time in police stations and I was around them all over the place and um, I had a lot of you know police as clients and after a while you pick up some of their jargon the way they talk and the way they think and 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 so on so you know I, I sort of probably uh, they felt that I was part of their their their, their scene so yeah. to speak so when you start talking like them, you know, and you pick up some of the, how they talk, there's obviously a lot of common ground and trust and rapport built human to human when someone, when you're talking the same language. It's almost like you pick up their language yeah, when you're hanging around, right? Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> Arnie Helen told me that, when I saw her last, said that when you were with TNG, that you would get on a pair of uh, railroad boots or, or you get a book, uh, like a manila folder, and put on their railroad, uh, railroad... Um, insurance or something like that and you would go and jump on the buses where all the railroad employees were riding the bus and you would just jump on the bus yeah. and they would see the manila folder that you're <laughs> partly in the railroad doing insurance with the boots and you would write them all up on insurance policies on the bus <laughs> is that true it is i okay. did that with a lot of different industries um bhp was an example where i'd have a bhp folder with all the applications in it for insurance and uh, I'd walk around with an ID badge on with my photograph and uh, my name and the company that I was with and um, people just look at the badge, they wouldn't look at it closely and they probably just always thought that I was part of the BHB team. So now we're getting into the juice here because if you've ever seen the, the movie Catch Me If You Can, it's very similar. So in these days it was just, you could just, you know, you, you could find yourself in organisations and I think it was just about being very... Um, very uh, I would say crafty about getting in front of people because it would have been hard with unions and stuff to talk to people in large employment establishments so just picture this I, I think there was a story where I think um, one of the colleagues dad sell through told me the story but he said that he was in BHP once with the white coat on that they used to wear he used to walk around the white coat and he said on the loudspeaker they said there's a couple of insurance agents walking around the establishment could just be a little bit careful they don't work here and yet and you two are in there, and you and you or him were signing up someone on a policy while that went on the loudspeaker, and they didn't even realise. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, I, the, the, this is back in the eighties. There was no. Um, this is just how things happened back back then. But I these are. The- in, I went into Liddell Power Station one day, and I spoke to the general manager, and, and he decided that he wasn't going to allow me to go in. So I walked out a little bit despondent, and I started walking towards the car, and and I remember hearing the stones under my feet crunching, and my mind was racing, and I did a, a spin and started walking back and my colleague said to me where are you going and I said well if the general manager of Liddell Power Station is not going to let me talk to their employees I'm going to go and talk to the union heads about getting permission to talk to their members so I went in and spoke to the chairman of the union at Liddell Power Station there were seven different unions associated with that power station and I said, look, the general manager doesn't want me to talk to their employ- your employ- the employees. I believe that this insurance policy and savings plan is good for your members, and I'd like to uh, seek your assistance in getting permission to talk to those people. Would you be uh, happy to do that? He said, not only would I be happy to do that, I'm going to make arrangements with management and we'll call a stop work meeting until they agree to do it, and then uh, I'm going to let you use my office and I'm going to send people to you two at a time. I stayed in Liddell Power Station for 36 hours solid and um, Jeff, my colleague at the time, Jeff Brown, um, he and I signed up in excess of 100 odd policies 
uh, for people who are working in that industry. Thanks for joining us this week on the Money Grows on Trees podcast. If you like the show, you might want to check out our book, Money Grows on Trees, which you can find at LloydJRoss.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, leave a review, and feel free to reach out to Lloyd on Instagram at LloydJamesRoss. 